0: listening to the futures podcast with me Luke Robert Mason on this episode I speak to quantitative futurist Amy Webb
1: I would like to see a future in which we all still have agency and my concern is that we are getting further and further away from a future in which each one of us has the ability to make decisions
0: Amy shared her insights into the importance of trend forecasting, the global challenges faced by modern business, and the tools you need for thinking like a futurist. This episode was recorded on location, in London, England, where Amy was due to give a keynote presentation. So, Amy Webb, you are a futurist. What does that term futurist mean to you?
1: So, in my case, as a futurist, I I consider myself to be a quantitative futurist, which is to say that I use data and quantitative evidence and qualitative evidence and use that to model out plausible, probable, and possible scenarios in the long term and then develop strategies around that. So, it's a data-driven process.
0: So, how did you get interested in this thing. future,
1: The future. So um, the short end of the story is that this is my second career. So my first career was as a foreign correspondent. And I was living in Tokyo and China in the mid-90s when a lot of the consumer technology that we take for granted today was first being prototyped. So I got to see very early versions of phones that were connected to the internet, phones that had cameras. And I remember thinking how dramatically that technology was going to change everyday life. And I continually had challenges convincing the journalists that I was working with that someday in the very near future, we were all going to have the Internet in our pocket and have access to news 24-7. And we were going to probably have new distribution channels to enable anybody to share news. And by the way, you know, I could take a photo which probably means then I will probably someday be able to take a video and post it from wherever I happen to be. And I got constant feedback and just editors saying, who would ever publish a, a grainy photo taken from somebody's phone? Nobody would ever do that. A grainy phone photo will never run in a newspaper. And I remember saying, I'm not talking about the physical newspaper, I'm talking about the Internet. So... I got tired of having those arguments, and quite frankly, the newsroom was tired of me bringing up those arguments, (laughs) and we parted ways. Um, And I started an R&D lab that was prototyping news futures, mostly in the distribution realm, but basically we were working all the time on interesting and different ways to collect and share news, and that was all about the future. Uh, At the same time, I I had discovered Alvin Toffler, um, which then led to all of the futurists from the late 1800s through the 70s or so, um, I read everything and decided, wow, there's there are people who do this all, all the time. They think about and model out future scenarios and they do that for all different types of purposes and that's what I should be doing next.
0: So, so your new book, The Signals Are Talking, is really a, a, the methodology for how we analyze and look at the future. Could you share some of those methodologies that you share in the book?
1: Sure. So, my methodology is six parts, and it was definitely influenced by other futurists who have, you know, in the sort of academic space. My model alternates between what Stanford's D School would call uh, flared and focused thinking. It's been my observation that when people are thinking about the future, especially when it comes to technology, They tend to focus on just one thing. So they're thinking, you know, if they're trying to figure out the future of cars, and I just had a long conversation with an auto company about this, what they're trying to do is figure out the future of people moving around. They're not actually trying to figure out the future of cars, because that would assume that we will only ever have cars. That narrow thinking is the result from not going really broad in a methodical way and then going narrow when it makes sense. So my method is six steps. It starts with uh, hunting down weak signals at the fringe. So these are changes in technology, changes in society, and what I would call the 10 modern sources of change, which involve everything from ecology to economics and wealth changes. That sort of allows me to create a map, and I call that map a fringe sketch. But for people who have done any kind of statistics, it's just a bunch of nodes and connections. But that essential step, especially when you do it with a team of people, it helps you find all of the different pieces that you otherwise would have missed. Uh, it forces you to change the question from what's the future of cars to what's the future of people, pets and objects moving around. And from there, the second step is to then focus and do you know, pattern recognition and look for patterns from those signals. At that point, uh, you should have different trend candidates And trends are important because they are waypoints to the future. So, you know, a lot of times people think like identifying trends, like that's the whole goal. That's the end. And really, that's the beginning. Because once you've identified trends, you have to do three things. So those are the next couple steps in the process. One is you have to make sure you didn't screw up, right? And a whole bunch of people get distracted by shiny objects. The example that I like to use is Foursquare and checking in and badges, like if you can remember way back many many years ago to 2013, uh, when everybody was was checking in and earning their badges, lots of companies invested, lots of companies made custom badges, and everybody thought that the badges and the check-ins were the future. That wasn't the future. Location-based services, which is really boring. That was the future. That, like, that was, was what was worth paying attention to. That was the trend. But the third step of the process is, again, to f- sort of focus, to, to ask yourselves a bunch of questions and to go through your data and to go through the models to make sure you didn't mess anything up. And then the fourth step uh, is to narrow once again and think through timing and trajectory and then you have to take some kind of action. So the fifth and sixth steps have to do with developing a strategy. So it's a long explanation, but I should say, um, the reason that I just explained it all is because as of last month, I have open sourced all of my IP. So all of my research, all of the work that I've ever done is now freely available. And
0: what's the reason? Yeah, what's the reason for that?
1: (laughs) Uh, that seems nuts. Why on earth would you do that?
0: <laughs> well, when when so many futurists and it seems kind of protect the, yeah. their methodologies and it's as if futurists do this magical yeah, thinking back in their back in their offices <laughs> and yet the first thing they say when they get onto stage is no one understands what I do and yeah. there's always this fake mythos that's created around what I like to call the the mediatized futurist the futurist who has a keynote speaking career but really doesn't do the hard graft of dealing with the questions associated with this thing called the future.
1: Right, right. Excellent points and good question. The reason is because, well, I've always thought it was strange that people who run governments and businesses are expected to learn how to use a spreadsheet. They're they're expected to understand basic accounting and they're not expected to understand how to think like a futurist. And I've always thought that was really strange because ostensibly their jobs are the future. I think that we are on a a new kind of time horizon with regards to technology. It's our generation that's living through a transition. It just doesn't feel like it. My daughter, who's pretty young, she's going to be probably the last group of human beings who have to learn how to drive. My father, who is in his 70s, is going to probably be the last generation of people who still have to type. And we're looking at a whole bunch of fundamentally groundbreaking technologies that range from you know, the various facets of artificial intelligence to genomic editing, to all kinds of automation, you know, all of these things together will fundamentally change uh, what it's like to be a human. And at the same time, we, we are all also all living through a geopolitically unstable moment in time. I hope it's a moment. And part of that is the fault of the person running our country, <laughs> my country <laughs> right now. If it was any anybody else, You could use game theory to sort of model out what might happen next. We're in a situation where we truly don't know what might get tweeted next or what might happen next. And I'm concerned. And so my feeling is now more than ever, people are fetishizing the future and they feel very anxious about the future. And I want them all to I want everybody to make smarter decisions and to get informed and to use the tools that I use to make better decisions. So I see no harm in open sourcing everything. I see that only as a as a big benefit. Because if we are all using futurists' tools and models, and we're doing it in a serious way,
0: that will help everybody. Do you think some of the interest, or at least the public interest in notions and possibilities of the future comes from an attraction to shiny oh, yeah. objects? How do you extract or remove people from purely that? Fascination and help them realize that, you know, this thing's a lot more difficult to navigate. Right, right. You know, we're, we're told the future is going to be awesome. Yeah. You know, and you get these people who stand on stage and they kind of sell these incredible futures. But it always feels like the reason why people are so attracted to these futures is because there's something so fundamentally wrong with the present. And this feels like a potential to escape into something that will be better.
1: I think you're on to something. I would partially blame it on the pattern recognition parts of our brain that start firing off when we're looking to make sense of something. I think partially what tracks people to the tech utopianism. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's the same reason that we go watch movies in the theater. It's because we want an escape. And maybe it's also why people go to church, right? They want the promise of of a better tomorrow. But there's also the other side of that coin, which is the dystopian visions of the future. And there's plenty of people who also stand on stage and talk about the end of the world coming. A couple things are going on. As humans, we've always been surrounded by a lot of data. We are especially surrounded by and assaulted by enormous amounts of data today. And the way that our brains are wired is that we are constantly looking for patterns to help us make sense of what's around. And the easiest way for us to do something with that information once we've recognized patterns is to fit it into a narrative. So that's why storytelling is so fundamental to humanity. It's because that's how we parse information. So the people who tell these crazy stories about the future, whether they're positive or negative or strange or whatever, you know, it's, it's easy to connect to them and to what they're saying. But the thing to keep in mind is that I am a professional futurist, and I have absolutely no idea what the future is. My job isn't to tell you or to predict what the future is. My job is to figure out, given what we know to be true today, what are the likely paths, and where, you know, what does the probabilistic model show? Then we use that information to make better decisions. But that's that's like not as easily understood, right? Um, as somebody standing on stage with a pretty picture in the background and spaceships flying overhead and Uber taxi or whatever you want, to they're calling it these five minutes and saying that everything is going to be great. Just wait around for 15, 20 years for AGI to kick in.
0: Where do you think the current state of uh, discussing or or framing the future sits within this binary of either you're an eternal optimist of, you know, AI is going to save us, it's going to make us more intelligent about ourselves, or AI is going to be the thing that kills us if it isn't nanotech or it isn't some sort yeah. of thing that falls from space or synthetic biology. or uh, Why do you think it has to sit across these two dichotomies? I've always felt that when Elon and Co say that, oh, AI is going to be our last invention, it sometimes feels like it's just really good marketing. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the technology is quite there yet, but if they instill that fear in people, they believe that the future's closer than it actually is. I think the future itself is being used as a form of leverage in a weird yeah. sort of way.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really good perspective. It's the third step of my methodology, is once you've heard something or you've decided something is it like a technology is a thing, It's and even if it's binary at that point. Step number three says, eviscerate everything that you know tear it all apart and if at the end of you poking holes into every single thing you still believe that then fine and if you've got evidence to back it up. What I would say is that everybody has usually different reasons for offering polarizing views and usually those reasons have to do with some kind of gain and so that's part of it. The other part of it is we live in a world where information is everywhere. And in the digital realm, attention is currency, and it's harder and harder to get people's attention without saying something salacious. So Marvin Minsky, one of the founders of modern AI and one of the people who coined the term in the '60s, calls AI a suitcase word, and the reason is because you know you can you can pack a lot of stuff in a suitcase, and it is a suitcase. But once you open the suitcase up, you can have like a thousand different things in it. So. AI, artificial intelligence is a suitcase word because inside that suitcase is anything from, you know, machine reading comprehension to deep drill nets and, you know, machine learning and computational linguistics. I mean, there's a lot that that's in there. And to try to have a conversation with somebody who is not a technologist or, you know, who or who doesn't sort of follow what's happening, their eyes are going to gloss over. Therefore, it's either AI is going to kill us all or AI is going to save us all. That's what you know, grabs the attention. In reality, AI, artificial and narrow intelligence is already here. We all already use it and interact with it every single day. Anything in life, the subtleties are always what get missed. But those are usually the most important components to be paying attention to.
0: So what is the role then of the futurist to better educate say the general public around the language associated with potential new forms of technology it always feels like there's a language issue with the example of AI and the and the suitcase you know people are very confused as to what this technology is capable of doing what it does right now there's a, a miscommunication between what constitutes artificial intelligence versus what is essentially intelligence augmentation how can the futurist better help average Joe or Jane navigate these complex times.
1: You know, my I see my role as partly educational for that reason, to help the public understand and make sense of the technology in their lives and the decisions that we're, we're making with regards to that technology. Part of it is educational, part of it is advisory. So I do advise the United States government and the military and different companies. I think it there there are sort of dual purposes. There are certainly futurists who work in a consultative capacity. And I don't think do the public education. You know, I view myself as a public intellectual as much as anything. And I feel like I have an obligation to not just tell people this is what I see, but to show them, to show them my work, especially now when everything is potentially considered fake news, right? The last thing that we need is fake futures news. That would be a real problem.
0: Do you think we are in a situation where we're being shown a certain degree of fake futures? And it well, goes back to that issue around leverage A future being used as leverage, either because there's personal gain or there's there's profitability or there's some sort of political gain there. And that's that's been since the 60s where old Kennedy was going, we're not doing it because it's easy, we're doing it because it's hard. And yeah, he went yeah. off to space to prove that they owned both the future and the present versus the Russians. I just wonder when either personal agendas, profitability agendas, or political agendas it collide with the future, the, well, that's inevitable already outcome, the inevitable outcome is fake futures in the same way we have fake news.
1: That's right. And that is what caused the AI winter in the 60s. Right. So the answer to your question is, yeah, and, we, and that's not good when that happens. So for people who aren't familiar with this already. Leading up to the 1960s, there was a lot of activity happening with new kinds of computers and, you know, computers sort of moving from the first era of computing to the second era of of computing, if the first era really just was tabulation. The second was more about computation and complex computation. There was a lot of activity in the 40s, 50s, and 60s around sort of conceptualizing a framework where humans could teach machines to think, right? And so that was sort of the, the genesis of all of this. All the theories were fascinating, especially now it's really interesting to go back and read some of those early academic papers about whether or not humans might someday teach machines to think and what the machines might do. And uh, Minsky actually had a paper, uh, he had obviously several papers, but one of the papers that he wrote talked about whether or not machines could maybe gain consciousness. So there was a lot of really... Interesting debate and discussion. at the same time that computers were getting faster components, the, the price of components were dropping. We had additional compute power. We had more people that knew what to do with computers. We had the birth of modern compute computer science as an academic discipline. And then everybody started making a lot of promises. So one of the promises that got made in the United States, Was And this is at the height of the Cold War, that artificially intelligent machines could be used to simultaneously translate Russian into English, which would have been a game changer to to sort of monitor conversations that were happening and simultaneously translate those messages and the ultimate spying tool. But there was no way that that was going to work. So there was a lot of overpromising about the future. A lot of fake news about the future of AI in the 60s, and when a lot of that failed to materialize, all of that exuberance and excitement, and most importantly, funding, dried up. And the fake news about the future actually wound up dramatically impacting the future, and we um, set ourselves back. There's a lot of excitement again, and, and you know, everybody's talking about AI now, and there's a lot of the same exuberance, a lot of the same insane funding cycles, you mm-hmm. know. So do
0: you think we are do another winter, another AI winter? I
1: mean, you know, I would hope not. There's always going to be a pocket of people that push the technology forward. I think at this point, it's, all, it's like too big to fail, right? There's so much funding tied up. Uh, China has promised a chunk of its sovereign wealth fund, so I, I don't see... I don't see AI, the field going through the same thing it did during that first AI winter. However, I see a lot of people getting distracted by the shiny. The shiny object, I think in this case, is a lot of what you see celebrities talking about and celebrity technologists talking about. But also, you know, we're heavily influenced by entertainment media. And a lot of these images are indelible. So, her, the movie Her, mm-hmm. um, Black Mirror, and in Black Mirror. humans in the UK. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and, and in, World, in the, US and the US too. Absolutely. Yep. Now, some of those, I don't think I've, Westworld, by the way, is my favorite show ever. Most of the Black Mirror episodes are my second favorite. <laughs> I haven't come across anybody who believes that Westworld is likely in our future. I have, however, heard a bunch of people reference the movie Her and Samantha the character, right? On a, on a pretty regular basis, which means that when people think about the prospect of talking to machines, that movie is so stuck in their heads that that's what they've envisioned for the future. That's probably not what the future is going to look like in the near term, but it's a good reminder that we influence the outcomes of the future through effective storytelling.
0: Do you think there is certain mimetic power in science fiction that actually underlines Certain trajectories towards the future. Now we have less people reading science fiction. There is less, more people know Charlie Brooker's Black Mirror than they do William Gibson's Neuromancer. which you think it, so? Oh yeah. yeah. I was
1: as, as you were saying that I wasn't thinking of Gibson. I was thinking more of Asimov,
0: oh, Asimov or, more or, or F- Philip K. Dick. It feels like that guides most individuals' thinking, and Black Mirror is an interesting example because it feels so close.
1: Yeah, I think that control and nostalgia they're incredibly powerful feelings. And so there's a sense of not having any control when it comes to the future, because you don't know exactly what's going to happen next, unless you think that we are living in Elon Musk's uh, robot world. and Right. So that sense of not having control is an incredibly powerful and disorienting, and it engages our limbic systems and our limbic systems start firing off and the squishy computers inside of our heads, you know, our brains, you know, enter fight or flight mode and uh, we feel anxious. And then we start making, you know, and the stories that we tell ourselves in our heads are always worse than real life. They, they always are. So I think that that's one component. And if you think about just everyday technology, I would posit that a very small sliver of the general population Feels a hundred percent comfortable anytime they get a new television or get a new telephone or something. They're, they realize they're not going to break it, and they're okay making mistakes and tinkering and fiddling around, and it's not a big deal. I would argue that probably ninety percent of the population feels some sense of anxiety every time they have to replace their mobile device, right? Their mobile phone, or they have to get a new computer, or they have to do something different with email. It fires off that limbic system. And there is this sense that you don't have control. And to be fair, we don't. We don't really control any of the devices in our lives. Somebody else does. Amazon does. Google does. Twitter does. Facebook does. Pick a company. So I think that's a big piece of it. But as you were talking, you know, I'm wondering if we are always yearning for simpler times when we were kids. That's a theme, right? Simpler times when we were kids. I don't know that when I was a kid, my life was any simpler necessarily than it is now, but I think we all think that it was. I, I wonder if part of that storytelling that goes on inside of our heads was uh, it sort of feeds into that life is going to be much more complicated. You know, technology is part of every single thing that we do. You, there's no way to extract it. My hunch is that there's this underlying sense of anxiety that everybody feels because of technology all the time.
0: Anxiety and also depression. Do you think we're in this weird liminal space at the moment where we haven't quite gone through to what we were promised and we're not entirely sure as to what may emerge? Yeah, like, do you that's think a good a, question. It takes us a lot longer to deal with the impact of these devices or these tools in our lives.
1: Well, so, okay, so a couple of, int- yes. To what you just said, the answer is yes, (laughs) but let me explain why. You made me think of a couple interesting things. One thing that you made me think of was: so I was at a an event a couple months ago with Ev Williams, one of the founders of Twitter, and uh, there were about two thousand journalists in the room. And one of the things he he didn't address what has become of Twitter. He he didn't talk about it, and he didn't address. Twitter's impact on geopolitics. He didn't he didn't talk about any of it. Okay, I understand that he's a he's on the board. He's got a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that Twitter doesn't tank because of something he said. But a journalist, finally during the Q and A, did ask him, "Did you ever stop and think that maybe Twitter would get hijacked by bots or by people who would want to spread misinformation?" And his answer to that, I thought, was really telling. His answer was. It never occurred to us because we weren't thinking about it. We were just trying to build a cool product, right? If I had a nickel for every time I heard somebody <laughs> say, we're just, we're just trying to, we're just working on the product right now. That's bullshit. The problem is, A, I think that's either untrue or wildly irresponsible. I cannot fathom that, especially because, you know, before Twitter, Ev had another project. Do you know what else he founded before that? You ever heard a blogger? it's not as though he had never seen somebody use a free platform to spread ill right around the world. My point is um, we are past the, we are past a time when, when you can just work on the product, you know, and not think about anything else Um, because any technology that comes into the media space is subject to, misuse and, you know, use for good and and all of these other things. But you, you have to start thinking through the second, third, fourth, fifth order implications of whatever it is that you're building. If you've done that and you acknowledge, but then you choose to not worry about it, fine, but just own up to it. You know, I kind of wish Alvin Toffler was alive today. (laughs) You know, unfortunately he just passed uh, or recently passed. I wish that he was alive today and that he hadn't yet written Future Shock. I wonder what the 2017 version of his book Future Shock would sound like. My gut tells me it would sound a lot like it did in the 60s, right? And so but but probably with more urgency. Humans go through cycles. So it may feel right now like life is moving very fast and we don't have a lot of control and we feel very anxious and people are making bad decisions. But if you look at a lot of the literature and science fiction and movies and shows and stuff that was being written in the 60s, people felt the exact same way. And if you go back to the 40s, the same, and the 20s, the same. There's a history of this.
0: I wonder if we've always been in this feeling of increasing acceleration, whether we've Always felt like the technology, the, the movie camera, and all these other things have been in this constant state of flux. So, I wonder if this is just a normal situation, and all that changes is the is the medium of transmission.
1: Well, but that's an important piece of it, and I actually think—and plenty of people would argue with me—but I, I would agree that we have always been in a state of flux. However, we have never in human history created this much data, nor have we ever in human history had the ability to ingest as much data as we do every single day. So, you know, if you think back to the sixties, there was television, there was radio, there were newspapers, there were magazines and like, that was it. And books, right. And movies that was still relatively slow, right? So you could have breaking news casts, but for the most part, if you wanted to find out you can go to the like Washington Post, and the United uh, and the New York Times in the United States both have archives that are open and e- easily searchable. If you look at the volume of news being reported about AI when it was new and terrifying and interesting, right, and that that and the reactions to that were all over the place in science fiction, right. If you go back, there wasn't a ton of insanity, right. There wasn't a ton of writing. Today, it's inescapable. You cannot get through the day unless you completely unplug from everything, right, which most people don't do. You can't get through the day without hearing some kind of news about change, right, whether that's technological change or economic change or disenfranchisement or something nutty happening with politics somewhere in the world. So I think that's the key difference, but that's an important difference because If our sense of change and anxiety is that much more heightened, then the stories that we tell ourselves about the future get that much crazier. And I think that it has this cascading effect where we wind up having these polarizing, binary responses to anything having to do with technology. And then, at least in my country, all of it gets politicized. And so you wind up with people saying, climate change, or there is no climate change, you know, or... AI is coming or our cabinet officials being AI deniers. You know, we've got you wind up with all kinds of crazy crazy information and thoughts.
0: Is that because we're trying to aim to work at the same speed as Capital. So to go back to Ev Williams, they're turning Twitter, which a lot of individuals are saying should be handed over as a public service, into a business that now has to return 100x return. But the, the numbers don't make sense.
1: The business model doesn't business make sense. The
0: business model doesn't make sense. And part of the speed within news and media is because they have to create click through to actually sell and service the ads. And are we losing something very human to capital? If suddenly Twitter started a slowdown in how much return on ad investment it was making, it would slowly but surely die as an organization. I always feel like the best thing Jack could do is hand it over to the general public and go, look. Oh, here no, it no, is. no.
1: Don't give it to the general public. No. That would be worse. I think
0: that it should become a um, platform cooperative. I, I'm, I'm fully. Well, <laughs> OK, so a
1: couple <laughs> of couple things. I, I it's actually a public think service,
0: th- it's a public good. It should be used in that way.
1: I think um, so there was a worldwide consortium of journalists that have been doing phenomenal investigative work that resulted in something called the Panama Papers and now the, the Paradise Papers. So one of the things that I recently said was that Twitter is the the wire service of the 21st century. I did not, and the context around that was that news goes over the transom quickly as it did at the beginning of, of the sort of early days of wire services. However, unlike The AP or Reuters or the AFP, which only allowed quality journalism that had been vetted and reported and sourced and edited, anybody can put their stuff out through Twitter. That's actually not a good thing. It can be used as a 21st century wire service if there's a global consortium of news organizations that get it somehow. I don't think it's purchasable by anybody. And they allow the public to continue using it. However, there are plenty of ways to make sure that networks aren't taken over by botnets and, you know, that misinformation doesn't spread. And I could literally talk to you for about an hour in very, very deeply technical terms and explain to you exactly how that would work. To your question about capitalism versus the future, which I think is actually an interesting debate and sort of right on, um, Twitter uh, is not a good use case for that because, you know, they're not (laughs) <laughs> They're not making money outside of a handful of licensing deals. And I'm not sure how sustainable their their model is in the longer term. However, Google and Amazon and Tencent in China and Baidu and Alibaba, there are plenty of other companies that are very, very large that are in the personal and public information business. Now, in that case... Those are all publicly, tra- well, not in the Chinese companies, but in the United States, those are publicly traded companies. And the economic interests don't always align with what's best for the longer, you know, what's best for society in the longer term. But you could also argue that in a capitalistic society, you know, a business which has a responsibility, a fiduciary responsibility to shareholders, has to put its business interests first. So you could argue that these companies are doing exactly what they are set up to do and they are doing it well. The challenge is that we now see some of the effects of Silicon Valley essentially operating independently of what the rest of our country or the rest of the world, you know, is doing.
0: You as an individual beyond the work that you do in terms of predicting other people's or other businesses' future, what's the sort of future that you would like to see?
1: That's an easy question to answer. I would like to see a future in which we all still have agency. And my concern is that we are getting further and further away from a future in which each one of us has the ability to make decisions. And that's because we control less and less of the data, our our own personal data, we are further and further removed from the algorithms that um, both mine and refine and process that data. And we have very little insight into how decisions are make, being made on our behalf, when that's even happening. There's no transparency around how decisions are being made. And that may not sound like a technical issue. However, all of the technology that you use in your life, whether that is your telephone, your your, you know, your smartphone or your email um, or the game that you're playing, you have almost no say or control into how you actually use that device and how that device uses you. The challenge is that the more our technology sort of gets sophisticated in its approach, the closer that we move to a zero UI reality where where things happen sort of for us seamlessly, the more that we are allowing people to program machines to make decisions for us. That sci-fi future terrifies me more than anything I have seen on Black Mirror because, because that's everyday life. And so the best that I can hope for is that everybody starts thinking through the implications of all the technology that we have access to And comes to a unified decision that we are about to enable an enormous tragedy of the commons. We are the commons, right? And that we have, you know, collectively decide that we want something better for ourselves.
0: Well, on that note, Amy Webb, thank you for your time. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Thank you to Amy for sharing her thoughts on how we can think more critically and deeply about the future. You can find out more by purchasing Amy's books or downloading her open-source forecasting tools at amyweb.io. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.